Imagine if everyone thought the country was kin and cared for it like their mother. You wouldn't have as much destruction. Welcome everyone to 100 Climate Conversations. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the ancestral homelands upon which the powerhouse museums are situated. We respect their elders, ancestors, and we recognise their sovereignty was never ceded. To the Gadigal people, whose land this talk is being recorded on, I acknowledge that the colonisation of this continent started here. I acknowledge your resistance and your resilience, and that despite violent attempts, your cultures, land and your people are still here. Today is number 100 of 100 conversations happening every Friday. The series presents 100 visionary Australians that are taking positive action to respond to the most critical issue of our time, the climate crisis. We are recording live today in the boiler house of the Powerhouse Museum. Before it was home to the museum, it was the Ultimo Power Station. Built in 1899, it supplied coal-powered electricity to Sydney's tram system right into the 1960s. So in the context of this architectural artefact, we shift our focus forward to the innovations of the net zero revolution. My name is Rachel Hocking and I'm a Walpuri woman from the Tanami Desert. I've lived and worked on Gadigal land for about eight years now. And I've been working mostly as a journalist, but recently more as an editor, trainer, and curator. Dr. Terry Janke is a Wutathi and Miriam woman and a global expert in Indigenous cultural and intellectual property. Janke is the owner and solicitor and director of Terry Janke and Company, where the team strives to empower Indigenous peoples to manage their culture and attain their business goals. In July 2021, she authored True Tracks, Indigenous Knowledge and Culture, and was the co-chief author of the 2021 State of Environment Report, the first collaboration between Indigenous and non-Indigenous knowledge systems in the report's history. Janke's work speaks to the interconnectedness between Indigenous rights and climate resilience, emphasising the importance of traditional knowledge and its crucial role in addressing climate change. I'm so honoured to have you join me today. Thank you, Terry. Can you please put your hands together? Thank you. Thank you. And Terry, so much that I could jump into because your, your life's work is, is, is quite remarkable. But I wanted to know if you could take us back to the beginning uh, and talk about some of your formative life experiences your mob, your community, your culture. I know you were born in Cairns. How did these early experiences in your life shape your passion for social justice? Well, as a kid, I was really aware that being Indigenous was something that everyone sort of looked down upon in Cairns, where I grew up. As a kid, you weren't expected to do well at school. And then you would see how... First Nations people were treated and that's Aboriginal people from the Cape or Torres Strait Islanders that were living there or local Aboriginal people there. Uh, It was like uh, we were on the fringes 
And so as a kid in the 1970s, I grew up really uh, being, you know, impacted by that and thinking that I would have limited choices until I went to high school. And I thought it can't be like this. I, I don't agree that that is First Nations people's place in society. And I wanted to change it. So when I was going through high school, you know, uh, we moved to Canberra and, you know, there was a tent embassy, there were marches on land rights and the songs like, you know, were coming out like Goanna Band or No Fixed Address, I remember really well. And I wanted to be part of that, but I, I didn't know how. And as, uh, you know, a black kid, Um, shy black kid, didn't really know what to say. But I found that if I um, could use the law and I was moving to go into study law because my sister Tony was going through law school and I thought I could use the law uh, as a means of social justice. And I thought, hey, I've watched LA Law on TV at the time. Thought, you know, it's cool to be a lawyer. Um, but I didn't realise how hard that would be as uh, a journey. I, I thought, was it going to be criminal law, uh, something in the courts? Uh, it's very adversarial, which is not really an Indigenous way of solving things. But I ended up finding um, intellectual property, copyright through the arts, because um, I, I dropped out of uni actually after property law. This was pre-Marbo case. And I didn't think I would be a lawyer. It wasn't for me. It was just a very different environment. But after working in the arts, I got connected to culture and to people who were using the arts to convey social justice messages and look at disadvantage, advanced land rights, anything to do with Indigenous empowerment. And I was so inspired by it and part of that community that I thought I may be able to go back to law because now I found where I I could find my place. So social justice as a lawyer uh, became my pathway, but specifically intellectual property because I understood that there was arts, culture and knowledge that First Nations people had despite the impact of invasion. It was something that we still held and were connected through with our identity. And it was even more important as we were moving, you know, this was the 90s, we were going to move to, you know, technological shifts, just the way that Australia was changing uh, post the bicentenary, uh, which had, uh, you know, come out of uh, in the early 90s were more about rights. So I was really empowered to work in Indigenous intellectual property. It's really interesting because around that time when you were saying you were starting out, you were starting to find your feet and your passion, the landmark Marbo decision is handed down in the early 90s. How did that moment change your career trajectory? It was the first time I saw it as an Indigenous person or there was a number of um, applicants there Uh, taking the law and making such a huge impact on the Australian legal landscape. When I first did law school, we were taught uh, that the doctrine of terra nullius was alive and well. When I first started 
Uh, there was a big, thick blue textbook that I read and it was just full of land law that basically was the basis for the terra nullius um, ownership of Australia, um, you know, Indigenous people having no belonging or rights. So the shift was that uh, when I got to do property law again, the Marbo case was in, you know, the lecturer was talking about it, so I felt connected automatically but there was also um, that sort of disbelief I had in the law that the law was impacting Indigenous people's rights. You know, we were the ones that would go to court uh, and, you know, um, the criminal injustice system was uh, impacting on us, uh, land laws were impacting on us and all of those rights. It was the first time it was like we're turning it around now and we're seeing native title rights come up. And we didn't have the legislation at the time. And I remember that it was all in the papers and in the news. Obviously, it's very sad that Mr. Marbo passed away at the time that the decision was handed down. But he just also, because he was Torres Strait Islander and Miriam, I was just so connected with it. I just felt like it was a new pathway for me as a young Indigenous law student to have faith in the law. So I went back thinking like, yes, I can, I can do this and imagine, imagine what type of decisions can come out of, you know, legal cases. So it was fascinating for me. I would have, I mean, to, we talk about it all the time in the media, but to sort of see yourself reflected back in that way, it's, it's powerful. It has a huge impact, especially when you're developing your passions and looking where to go. And today... You are a global expert in Indigenous cultural intellectual property rights. For people listening who maybe haven't heard IP described in this way, what is ICIP? Indigenous cultural and intellectual property is Indigenous people's rights to their heritage. So that's the heritage from their country, their land, seas and waters, the sky country. And it is that that's passed down through the generations like knowledge of country, um, stories, song lines, art, all of that uh, is part of you know, a kinship obligation to continue to practice culture and we want to keep it true, keep the cultural integrity strong, keep connected to those Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander source communities. So the rights to culture are the rights to practice culture, to maintain, control and protect it. And it's important these days because we have a lot of outsiders coming into communities and on country that may want to use it commercially or within research and it severs that connection of Indigenous people to their culture. So the rights are about maintaining those links and they are cultural in nature but they are also about empowering opportunity for Indigenous people for their economic futures as well. Absolutely. Um, A lot of your work recently has been around ICIP and its relationship to our fight against the changing climate. How is ICIP work and our rights in this space intrinsically connected to our fights to protect country? Well, First Nations people have cared for country since the beginning of time. Time immemorial, as Indigenous people believe. It's a fundamental belief of First Nations people that country is kin. So you treat the earth, the waters, the plants, the animals, each other with 
that reverence for that you are part of an ecosystem, that we as humans are part of that circle of life and that we are not at the top of a pyramid that um, wields our power over all things. So in knowledge systems, they all come from country. So knowledge of country might include knowledge of the landscapes and the waters, but the plants and when they flower so that the birds will come there and eat the flowers. But at the same time, you might know that the stingrays are coming or the fish are there, so it's time to hunt. And then to be careful about that, it might be where you um, might look after um, species that are, you know, giving birth at the time. So it's that global or holistic way that Indigenous people think about country. And the knowledge runs deep, knowledge of country. So Indigenous cultural and intellectual property rights comes at a connection with climate change or with the opportunity for the world to tap into Indigenous knowledge to look after the environment better. There's a huge opportunity to tap into Indigenous knowledge of 65,000 years of cultural practice around caring for country to look after Australia, the continent, um, and basically restore some of the damage that has been done over the past 230-something years. Yeah, absolutely. Let's dig into how that is happening at the moment. You were the co-chief author of the 2021 State of Environment Report. As I said before, it was the first collaboration between Indigenous and non-Indigenous knowledge systems in the report's history. That's a long time coming, right? Yes, it was. That's a, I, I, it was remarkable to me to read that because I remember it at the time hearing it, but I, I, I guess I shouldn't be so surprised with, you know, the state of Indigenous affairs in this country. But what was that like to receive that invitation to come on as a co-chief author? Well, I wanted to understand that Indigenous voices would be included in there in a meaningful way. And to be brought on, I was brought on as a co-author with two uh, very esteemed scientists, Professor Emma Johnston and uh, Dr Ian Creswell. And there was also a team of Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, authors that were writing it, many of them esteemed scientists including esteemed First Nations scientists. So what we wanted to do was include Indigenous voices in the report and it was across uh, the, all the themes, you know, from climate change to land, uh, heritage, um, urban, biodiversity. All of those themes were to have collaborating authors that were Indigenous and non-Indigenous to put that point of view around what was the state of the environment. And it was interesting because you have um, a Western science sort of bias towards what's written and that there's scientific fact or some sort of imperatives that you get from an inquiry that scientists only know because they've studied and have the technical know-how. But here we have the body of traditional knowledge and Indigenous practice coming in to inform the state of the environment and cultural uh, practices that sustain the environment or the impacts 
of the deterioration of climate on the cultural practices and the health and well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So it obviously would involve a lot of different inquiry like people's oral stories or knowledge on country, and they're not necessarily scientists in the whitefella way, but they might have lived on country. There were, you know, women who were living and working in the desert, for example, uh, working with species and, and understanding, you know, um, sort of species that were um, invading the environment and um, who were, you know, uh, working with plant knowledge or um, rangers a lot of rangers doing amazing work. Uh, that was one of the success stories, I think, of the inquiry to see uh, the caring for country through the uh, rangers working in Indigenous protected areas and all of that, people working on country and not only was it providing jobs for them or giving them pride and connection to country, it was actually doing a good job with managing country so that we as Australians can benefit from you know, uh, a sustainable environment. So bringing those two different ways of thinking together was a challenge, but I loved how at the start of it we, uh, we had meetings together, uh, regularly met, and we put together some collaboration guidelines to navigate how uh, we as a group of authors of this report would think about reporting and if we raised uh, something that was, you know, based in science, we'd look or a point, we'd look for something that was also backed in either an Indigenous case study or, or a project that brought to life that um, it was a Western science and an Indigenous science collaboration uh, report that we were working on. And it was challenging. It was not without its challenges. But I watched these group of amazing scientists come together and um, think through, you know, there was a lot of writing, rewriting, a lot of weekend work. We did it through COVID online. It was amazing. And I I just thought that um, they did an amazing job. And yeah, myself, Emma and Ian were the co-chief authors of it. But um, the whole collective put together a, a report that, yes, it did say that the state of the environment is deteriorating, cumulative impacts over many years um, leading to extreme weather events that are impacting our environment. But also it did point to the fact that if we work together, First Nations people using Indigenous knowledge, caring for country principles, that it could be turned around. Now, to me, that's the good news. And it is a really great highlighting of that opportunity for communities to work together and bring ancient knowledge with new knowledge to, yeah, to really care for the environment. Imagine if everyone thought the country was kin and cared for it like their mother. You wouldn't have as much destruction. It's absolutely true. Uh, We have heard that Pretty much every conversation I've had on this stage for the last two years, that's been the sentiment from blackfellas who work on country. Treat it like your mother, you treat it like your kin, and where are you going to go wrong there? Um, I, I, I want to speak a bit about that two-way learning, that two-way knowledge systems that you incorporated into this report for the first time in the report's history. 
How big a shift was that for the report, for the Western scientists you were working with to expand the scope to include our knowledges on par? I think it was done with uh, a lot. I mentioned the collaboration guidelines that provided a, a pathway for them to think if there's a scientific uh, lens that they're going uh, down or they're reporting on a particular aspect of the environment, that they would look for both evidence in both camps, uh, a scientific approach and a First Nations approach. Writing together was, I know, I know it was a challenge, but um, we did it. So I think people took it on board to listen to each other and write in ways that, you know, they might not have done before. And I don't think it always was as smooth. Some people were challenged. But mostly there was great willingness to bring on board the the voices, you know. I think even if um, they were challenged, they would think we need to put those perspectives, not just the co-authors that were Indigenous. It was looking for projects, looking for evidence, looking for data that would bring out that voice that that people look for. And two things really um, came to my mind through this process that would have been challenging. First, there's an absence of the data because uh, the data sets often fall to uh, a very scientific lens of, you know, there's a lot of data out there, but it's captured from the lens of what a scientist would be looking for, whether it's um, the health of a river system might focus on the chemical, um, what's in the water or the pH level. And I'm not a science here, I'm moving out of my depth here. But First Nations people might look at what's, you know, the impact of the the reeds or uh, for weaving and the women going there to weave or practice or how that might impact children going there to swim and, you know, going on country, you know, to practice culture. So those two things are, are coming together here. So only one's really cap- captured in like a data sort of set that is a scientific journal or some sort of university capturing of knowledge in a database or all of those sort of databases that collect scientific knowledge. But when we looked for things from an Indigenous lens to find what's the impact on culture and health and well-being on the local you know, people that rely on that river for their cultural livelihood, a lot of that information is not in a database and how do you measure it together? So that's a challenge. So I think that was, you know, the first thing that people uh, found a challenge. The other thing was we had to go and do a lot of talking to people and holding workshops and consultations as part of asking First Nations people about what the state of the environment was. So that was a challenge, I think, because which community do you go to? How do you uh, do this in a fair way to take in all the many different First Nations voices? And there was a national consultation process that uh, was done by Murrowan Consulting that fed into it. But you can see here that it was a new type of inquiry that inputted data to the report 
and we used it in there. So you can see things like uh, people's quotes. We can see language in there, in the report now, and I think it makes it a better read. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely does. I mean, you're reading it and you feel like you're listening to Blackfellas tell your story about country. And I want to dig into some of those stories because, as you said, many of the stories that the report tells, they speak to how these climate changes are being felt in real time by traditional custodians who are seeing their practices, their traditional practices on country disrupted because of this massive shift in the climate. What are some examples of this disruption that you and your co-authors witnessed on the ground and and heard stories of? Well, there's a big issue with the rising sea levels in the Torres Strait. Uh, You can see that in islands such as Boigu and Saibai, um, the impact of emissions is raising the sea level and um, they're going to lose their land. They're going to lose heritage sites, sacred sites, they're going to lose their homelands. And not only that, it impacts cultural practices. I mean, in that particular case, we've seen Torres Strait Islanders launch Australia's first, you know, climate change case in in the courts, challenging um, ministerial decisions around um, not taking action quickly enough. So it's really causing absolute destruction and loss to those communities. But then you see things like shifts in um, seawater coming into freshwater, changes in the brackish water so that there's, you know, shifts in species, hotter temperatures, species on the move. So Indigenous peoples' cultural practices are changing. The food, the hunting and all of that will also change cultural practices around collecting um, plants or, um, you know, flowering species to eat, that's all shifting. And I think it really, um, it means a lot. These climate changes are seeing extreme weather events, the bushfires. Um, We've seen absolute devastation here on uh, the southeastern um, part of Australia with the bushfires a few years ago, which caused absolute devastation um, to country. And First Nations people really, you know, it's their country. And when you see it burnt, the connection to country, um, it really impacts the health and well-being of it. And particularly with the practices of cultural fire management being, you know, something that could help country be looked after better, I think it really, yeah, it impacts First Nations people at a physical and emotional and spiritual level. You talk about that, the report, that that impact on our health and well-being as being just another major consideration we need to take in. Um, You know, we we see it on young people when they think about their futures and what future they have. Uh, Young people, especially in places like the Torres Strait and even my own country in the central desert where I went out to my family's outstation a couple of weeks ago, Hunter, just an hour outside of Lajumanu, south of Gurunji country, and there had been a very large wildfire through it the last since the last time I'd been. Um, most of the outstation had been destroyed and we were thinking to ourselves while we were standing there, are we going to be able to come back here in 10 years' time? Are the roads going to be safe? Is this country going to be safe to come back to in 10 years' time when I might have children? And I know these uh, feelings of pretty universal for mob, you know, that pain of questioning what's going to be there. 
So how important is it to, to really focus on those health and wellbeing implications of this climate crisis? Well, I think, I think it's uh, an outcome of if we don't do anything, it's going to impact everyone's health and wellbeing. I know First Nations people, I thank you for your story, are connected to country and their health and wellbeing is impacted, but I, it's going to be everyone's. And I think the, the youth of Australia are seeing that um, probably more than people of my generation and the, the generation above me. They're wondering, you know, what are they going to say to their children? Are they going to be able to enjoy the beaches, the rivers, uh, and to see uh, the landscapers, you know, well, I've grown up with and you say in your community how it was when you were growing up there. So I think that it impacts people, particularly when they feel helpless about it, when the people who are making decisions, um, how, do they, how do they have a voice to it? So I was relating this to uh, when I started doing this. A lot of um, people at my work, the young people, they were all really interested in, in this particular project that I was working in. And even my son, who is, you know, um, in his early 20s, and he was never interested in any work I did, but was very interested in this because he felt like he had a stake in the future. Like you said, it's my children. My, what am I going to have in the world? What do I inherit from you guys? If you don't destroy everything so there's nothing for us sort of thing. And it was, it was really, I think he, he was thinking about it. And um, it, it hits everybody, I think, um, emotionally around it. And when we're writing that report, we're thinking about um, it is a devastating message to be the ones to say the state is declining. It's a hard message to tell people. But the good message is, hey, we can work together. Imagine that. If people feel like their voices can be heard, what can they do at an individual level? And the report does speak to things like citizen science, um, you know, not just leaving it up to government, what companies can do, what do we expect of the companies that we invest in to do when they are making decisions around um, the mines that they are making or um, the roads or the projects that they are doing in the environment. I think we have more power as individuals than we know, but we want to be able to, um, yeah, just feel like our voices are heard. So the report, it's, it's hard news to take, but the news is also let's all work together and we can do this. Be motivated by yeah. it. Yeah. And, and you, do, you don't, um, you know, pull any punches. I, I was... It's, it's always important, I think, for young mobs especially, but to see colonisation named, and this report names the ongoing effects of colonisation as implicated in this situation that we're in, how these effects disempower our people, how they deny us access to our country and how they foster that resistance to our knowledge systems. How are you seeing our mobs combat that resistance and devaluing yeah. of our knowledges? Yeah, yeah. Well, the ongoing colonisation is impacted in the laws, the systems, the policies, the way things are done and how uh, this area is regulated. So what I'm seeing is uh, First Nations people, grassroots movement. I mentioned the rangers. I think that they're absolutely 
uh, a success story of the last five years and um, just being able to, uh, and the government has supported them through funding, uh, people working on country. But I also see, um, you know, great alliances formed like the Indigenous Desert Alliance group pulling together to say, hey, or let's work to, together in a response. The Aboriginal Carbon Foundation and um, Indigenous Carbon Networks coming together to say, hey, if we all get together, we can work. So I think these things are ways that First Nations people are responding. And I was amazed to also see a lot of First Nations scientists, you know, working in there. You had, you know, Bradley Mogridge who works in inland water. You had um, people working in marine science um, and land and a lot of projects that were collaborations between you know, universities, research organisations and Aboriginal communities that were working together. So uh, there was a lot of um, goodwill for that. But I think there, there is still uh, a need for resources. And uh, to understand, I mean, this, the decision makers, the ongoing colonial um, focus on, uh, you know, the laws being about we don't, we value it um, as a place not letting in the Indigenous knowledge, the ways of um, those cultural practices and pointing to all the limitations towards letting that in, it needs to be challenged, I think, and we need to open up to see these collaborations, and there, there are good ones, as stepping stones that we can build on to open that up more and I'd like to see that more in the data that's being collected, the evidence base, focusing on what First Nations people's values are, what are their, their needs, their, their country, and working together with scientists to, to look after country. Because the other thing is, is that so much of this country is now in Indigenous hands, whether it be um, the Indigenous state is growing we either hold it uh, through land rights, native title rights, um, or have native title rights and interests, the national parks or Indigenous protected areas. So that automatically also puts us to think about how we can work with First Nations people to, to look after that country. Let's dig into a few more of those legal fights because this is your, your main area of expertise. Uh, in your 2022 Marbo Lecture, you called out the inadequate legal protections this country has for heritage protection. And you said the consent to destroy state-based approach of Aboriginal cultural heritage laws is failing us. This is what allowed Rio Tinto to blow up Jukun Gorge. Cultural heritage site has ancient knowledge and stories within it. And we, we know many of us are well aware of the story of pain and heartache and how irreversible that act was. How important is strong Indigenous cultural heritage legislation in our fight to protect country? Well, the Jukun Gorge um, destruction really highlighted the inadequacies of state laws and how they, uh, the Commonwealth law fails protection of, of culture. And the whole system is based on almost like a consent and destroy. Um, it is proponents going and... Uh, getting consent to basically you know, um, develop and it, it 
might lead to a destruction of a site and you have to get permission for it. It seems like counterintuitive to some, uh, an approach from an Indigenous point of view which would think about this site is intrinsically of value to culture, um, to us, but if you also think about of its value to Australians and to the world as a heritage site, um, the value of that site to, um, to world heritage was amazing, but we don't, we don't recognise that. We only think about the value of the site as we're uh, moving towards whether or not we destroy it or, you know, on the, on the road to development. And I'm not anti-development when I'm saying this, but I believe if, if people work together, you can, you can know that earlier. So the shifts in the laws need to involve more consultation with First Nations people that are impacted by activities that are going to destroy heritage. And that includes the physical site and the intangible heritage as well, like the song stories and the culture associated with it. So how do, how do we do that? We have laws that empower a minister to make that decision. Um, there's some changes in Victoria to, that, that give mob a bit more of a say, but how do we turn that around? So the system needs to think about um, how it fundamentally can pick up on the value of culture at the outset rather than it be something on the road to destruction and involve First Nations people in decisions and to, to put up there um, in the psyche of all, all Australians, all people who are running companies, that we have inherited um, stories, cultural heritage that is on par with any amazing site in the world, you know, pyramids or, you know, stuff like that. It's so much older and the knowledge. So why don't we see that and value it? Absolutely. Um, I mean, we, we know we feel it when we're on country and I feel like what you said at the very beginning, if people just shifted their thinking a little bit more to see country as mother, to see country as carer, then it's, it's, it's not difficult at all to start reaching that level of value that we inherently grow up with for our heritage. I want to know if you think, in light of what we've been seeing in the Torres Strait, the incredible advocacy for country that a group of people have been going through over the last few years. Are we going to see more cases like the Torres Strait 8 holding the government to account for not just the lack of action on climate change but for a breach of our human rights? Absolutely. I can see that happening. There's cases being filed every year or every six months now that run that point, not just the duty of care that... um, the government or the minister has to make in terms of their decisions around the environment and the impact on First Nations homelands and um, cultural practices, health and wellbeing. But, yeah, uh, the human rights, the right to practice culture, um, yeah, that is a fundamental right. I mean, it is not uh, many people might know the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People as an expression of world Indigenous peoples' rights to their culture, their, um, their lands, their identity, their systems of law. There is that piece of international law, but it's also in those fundamental, you know, the right to practice culture in those human rights um, conventions and... Um, to live and, and have uh, food security 
and um, to feel that you, you're not under threat all the time and to pass on your culture to your children. Um, I think you know, economic rights as well are there in the human rights suite of conventions and there will be more. I, I, can, I can see them moving in our Australian courts but also international law. So people will be moving towards that. We're seeing so many shifts that I, I get really excited about, you know, moves to grant personhood to our rivers, to our mountains, to our country, to actually start to, to use legal frameworks to give that autonomy, that agency back to country because we do see it as living and breathing. We do see country as a being in itself. Coming to the end, Terry, I just wanted to go through some reflections with you. Um, We kicked off these climate conversations in March 2022. So it's been nearly two years now. 100 climate conversations with people like yourself who are doing incredibly important work, collaborative work with community, with country, to try and ensure that we have a future, that we have a better future than what we're currently facing. Have we made progress in climate and social justice in that time, in the past two years, do you think? Well, I would have to say yes. I think there's been a lot of collaborations since the State of the Environment report. The response by the Minister, Minister Plibersek, was to uh, make announcement about a new heritage law, more funding to rangers. We're seeing commitments to amending the the fundamental environmental laws at a Commonwealth level, and that it, that is changing. And we're seeing First Nations people being involved in, in the development of those new laws, and hopefully that, that will change. But I also think that uh, people are getting much more aware of the opportunity, as I was saying, with the opportunity for knowledge to inform the way that we care for country but also the way that we might develop things like bush food industries, responses to building um, products that take into account First Nations ways of, of doing things. I can see that happening within the research sector and people wanting to understand the Protocols. A lot of the work that we do is to teach people around what are, what are the ways that we can work together and have a good collaboration. So uh, we work on protocols called True Tracks Principles that are saying go through these 10 principles and you can get a better engagement and a better outcome but don't always focus on the outcome. Think of the process of involving First Nations people collaboratively asking them uh, for the use of their knowledge um, and respectfully using it, Indigenous-led, co-designed collaborations, giving attribution, keeping the integrity, benefit sharing is another big one that we've got to think about. We just don't take the knowledge and then, you know, it's, it's used all over the country and no blackfellas involved with it anymore. We are thinking about these principles to guide us through a new way of working together. And I see that commitment has risen in the last two years. 
And, and it's at this level. We've got Indigenous data sovereignty, principles around, around that, and just a lot more um, understanding. But it's got to start at that level from an individual to a community level. And we also need to have, I think what's lacking is the resources to undertake these um, these processes and projects and that will need to be looked at. And it's it's government, corporates and philanthropy that can all work together. And I have seen projects in, in all three of those areas in the last two years that can make a difference. And, yeah, I, I do have a positive outlook on it and the next generation are much more attuned to it and, and I, I love that. Like you said, the framework and the protocols, they're there. MOB have done this work for decades. It's just time to invest in that work, that, that trajectory that MOB know is possible if you listen not just to custodians but listen to country. Yeah. Beyond your expectations, Terry, to, to close this conversation and to close the 100 climate conversations, uh, what, what are your hopes for not just the foreseeable future but for the next generation, for your children? Yeah. Well, I always think long-term. I, I've all, already thinking about my great-great-grandchildren and personally and why I wanted to be involved in it was I wanted to be an honourable ancestor at a personal level, that there would be something in the work that gives them a future. And and it's something we can all do. And that legacy, I think, um, for me personally as an Indigenous person, I don't live on country, so I can't, you know, do that. But my contribution is to do the work that I do. And I think everyone should find some way that they can be an honourable ancestor in their sphere of influence. And it makes, it touches my heart that um, obviously, um, you know, I want to be able to speak to my grandchildren through the work that I do and the legacy that I leave. And the healthy environment and a healthy culture, things that I... Um, had interrupted in my own life, you know, the, the practice of culture, I really would love them to have that. And not just my great-great-grandchildren, the great-great-grandchildren of the non-Indigenous co-authors of that report and, you know, of all Australians to be together and think, hey, um, we're grateful that we have inherited a country that is um, strong and healthy. Thank you, Terry. Thank you so much. Could everyone please put your hands together for Terry? <laughs> this conversation and all the conversations I've had on this stage have meant a lot. Um, and you speaking about being an honourable ancestor, here I go. <laughs> um, yeah, that's why we do this work, right? That's why we have these arms. Um, my space is the media, your space is in law, and we're all trying to do something to ensure that our children, our children's children, your children, your children's children, all have a place on this earth, on this country. 
in decades to come. And being back home recently just really drove home the importance of having these yarns in spaces like this, because if we don't talk about it, what are we doing? And so I just encourage all of you to, to, to listen deeply and then to act. Listen deeply and act. That's where we start. To follow the program online, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or go to 100climateconversations.com. Records of the conversations are going to form a new climate change archive. It's going to be preserved for future generations in the Powerhouse Collection, which has over 500,000 objects that tell the stories of our time. You can see more from the museum at Powerhouse Museum on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.